Our text this morning comes from Jonah chapter 1. We'll be focusing on verses 4 through 16, and I'll begin reading at verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord and gracious God, we thank you for this word that you have prepared for us today. Would you open our ears and open our hearts to receive it with faith, to marvel at your stormy mercy. Father, we pray that you would give us ears to learn from the example of Jonah, to apply it to our own lives, that we might live lives of obedience and faithfulness, that we might understand what it means to cast ourselves upon your mercy. Bless us now as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So what does God do when we run away from his presence? Last time we looked back in Jonah's history to show that he and all Israel were the recipients of God's mercy. When God restored all of Israel's territory back to her, even when she was mired in wickedness, 
under King Jeroboam II. That was Jonah's initial prophecy we saw in the book of 2 Kings. And then we heard God's commission to Jonah to call out against the wickedness of Nineveh another demonstration of God's mercy. But today our focus is on the mercy that comes to Jonah as an individual. When in response to that commission, Jonah refuses to carry God's mercy to Nineveh and flees away from the presence of the Lord by boarding the ship to Tarshish, heading in the opposite direction of obedience. So what is God's response to Jonah? Well, I've titled the message today, Tempestuous Mercy, because when Jonah disobeys and flees, God hurls a violent wind after his runaway prophet, hiding mercy in the disguise of a great tempest. And another name for this sort of mercy is discipline or correction. When we sin and run away from God, God sends some hardship or suffering into our lives to alert us to the fact that we're headed in the wrong direction. What discipline does is it gives us a preview of what will happen if we reach our destination while running away from the presence of the Lord. If we complete that journey away from God, we will end up in a place of suffering, pain, and misery. And so God, in his mercy, sends us a preview, shows us what our destination is in order to cause us to stop, to turn around, and get back on the path to life and joy in the presence of God. So let's look at how that plays out here in the life of Jonah. This powerful storm is God's merciful reply to Jonah's sin. And in our text today, we're going to see four wrong responses to this mercy storm before Jonah finally responds the right way. And strangely enough, these four responses are going to look painfully familiar to responses that we have in our own lives as well when we are running away from God. And so the first wrong response that we see is on the part of these sailors. The storm is threatening to break the ship apart, and so each sailor cries out to his God. Now, of course, crying out to God is absolutely the right response, but the only person on board who knows the true God, the only God who could actually help, is Jonah. And he's the only one who's not calling out to his God. All the sailors are calling out to idols. No ears, no hands, no help. This is a message to those in our day who call for, for faith. Just have faith in general. Don't worry so much about the objects. Just, just have faith. But faith in faith doesn't calm a storm. Only the true God will hear and answer. So the sailors, in one sense, are right to call out for divine help, but they need to call on the true God. Well, for us, our idols that we call out to tend to be a little bit better disguised than those of the sailors, but we usually uh, unmask them by examining who we turn to when a storm hits our lives. What's your first port of call? Where does your help come from? Who do you look to? What do you trust in? Because today we're quick to turn 
for help to politicians or armies or doctors or therapists or rules or habits to improve our lives as if that will calm the storm. As John Calvin said, our hearts are idle factories. We're very good at coming up with false gods that we think can save us. And many of these things that I've mentioned are good in their place. When you're sick, calling for a doctor is the right response. But the problem comes when these things leave their proper place and push God right out of our hearts so that we think what's going on is simply a natural phenomenon. And we miss the possibility that God might have something to teach us through the suffering and difficulty that he brings into our lives. We don't think, I need God to help me. I need to repent of my sin. What we think is, maybe if I get a pill, my life will be better. This problem will go away. Maybe if someone passes a law, this problem would be solved. And that's idolatry. That's calling out to a God who cannot quiet a mercy storm. Well, the second wrong response also comes from these mariners when they start throwing the cargo overboard. And again, we probably shouldn't blame them. In most storms where an unbalanced boat is the problem, what they do makes complete sense. But in this storm, the problem is not that something's wrong with the load in the boat. The cargo is not the problem. The runaway profit is the problem. That's the point that needs to be addressed. But we can make this mistake, too. When God sends his storms into our lives, we rush to clean up our act with spiritual life hacks, self-improvement techniques, when that's really not the problem. And so when God hurls his great spirit on you to prompt you to reach out to your neighbors with the gospel, and your response is, hmm, maybe I ought to start tithing. Or I know I should catch up on my Bible reading. And you think of a million good and noble spiritual things to do, except the one thing that God's calling you to do. Well, you're just throwing the cargo overboard. You're not actually dealing with the problem. And you won't have peace until you address your runaway heart. Well, the third wrong response that we see comes from Jonah himself. During all this excitement, where is Jonah? He's asleep in the bottom of the boat. His journey down began last week. When God called him to rise up, Jonah keeps going down, down, down. It continues today. He goes down into the bottom of the boat, and then he lies down and goes to sleep. And there is no further down that Jonah can get inside the boat. Jonah's in denial. He's ignoring the problem that's caused by his running away from God. And I still have a, a vivid memory of seeing something like this in action. Uh, when I was talking to someone who had stopped going to church, after many years of apparent faithfulness, they, they just figured it wasn't something they needed anymore, so they stopped attending. And very shortly after, uh, the wheels completely came off of their lives. Problem after problem, uh, health, family, children, uh, car, money, it all started to pile up. And so I, I went to talk to them and uh, encourage them, come, come back to church. We miss you. We want you to come back. And 
I was stunned by the response when it came. They said, well, we would come back, but we really thought that something would be different when we stopped going. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Everything's different. Your life is, is, is falling apart. Your ship is threatening to break up. But they were asleep in the boat. They were in denial that the absence of God, their running away from the presence of the Lord, had caused a storm in their life meant to wake them up. But they were asleep in the bottom of the boat. But here's something amazing in verse 6. Imagine that you're Jonah, and God says to you, Arise, call out. That's your commission, to go to Nineveh and call out. And instead of obeying, you, you run away and you get on this ship to Tarshish, go down to the bottom of the boat and fall asleep, only to be awakened by a loud voice calling to you, Arise, call out. Because the same words appear in the mouth of the ship's captain that God had spoken to Jonah in his initial call. As Jonah uh, wakes up from his sleep, he hears a loud voice telling him to do exactly what God had told him to do. And he must realize that even though this time the voice came through the ship's captain, God has followed him onto this boat. He's not fled away from the presence of the Lord at all. But in his stubbornness, although they're calling on him to pray, uh, we have no record of him at this point actually praying. He's refusing probably because he already knows what the problem is. He knows what God would say. And he's still running. So see how badly sin messes things up. The only person on the whole boat who knows the true God is refusing to pray. Well, at this point, Having tried everything else, the sailors cast lots to figure out what's going on. What's the problem? This is no ordinary storm. None of our usual storm fighting tactics are working. So who's the cause of this? They cast lots, and guided by God, the lot falls on Jonah. And so immediately, here comes a rush of questions. Jonah, who are you? Where are you from? What's wrong with you? Why is this happening to us? And when Jonah tells them that he fears Yahweh, the God of heaven, the God who made the sea and the dry land, they are terrified. He's apparently already told them that he's running away from Yahweh, but it seems that up until now, they haven't really understood just who Yahweh is. But once they hear that Jonah is trying to flee by boat from the God who made the sea, they're terrified. Jonah, this was a terrible idea. What were you thinking? What is this you have done? They ask him. You can't flee from the God who made the ocean in a boat on the ocean. And so finally, they come to the prophet of the one who is responsible for the storm, and they ask, what do we need to do to make this stop, since it keeps getting worse? Well, Jonah prophesies, this storm will stop if you hurl me into the sea. And because this is such a famous Bible story that we tend to know the ending of, we can miss the fact that this means that Jonah is going to die. This tempest is destroying a boat out in the middle of the sea, and for someone to be thrown into the water does not mean this is Jonah's chance to swim to shore. No, he's going to drown. 
These are lifelong sailors who are absolutely terrified of this storm. And so Jonah says, throw me in, and the storm will stop. Kill me, Jonah says, and you will live. Jonah is telling the sailors to sacrifice him to God's storm so that they can be saved. Now, it's important to see this is not an atoning sacrifice that Jonah is proposing. Jonah's not paying for their sins. He's receiving justice for his own. But at the same time, it is still a sacrifice that will save the lives of the sailors. Jonah is willing to die so that these Gentiles might be saved. And so despite his initial disobedience, I think we can start to see why it is that Jesus loved Jonah so much. But the sailors are understandably hesitant to kill the prophet of the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. They're deeply concerned about shedding innocent blood, which, by the way, is very different from the Ninevites that we'll meet later. They don't want this powerful God mad at them. It's bad enough that this God is apparently mad at Jonah, and they're all about to die. And so if they offend this God further, what is going to happen? And by the way, Jonah hasn't really shown himself to be a very trustworthy guy in their opinion. And so they give us the fourth wrong response to the storm. At this point, when Jonah says, throw me in and you will live, they say, no, we're going to fix this ourselves. We're going to row harder. And that's the fourth wrong response but it also might be the one that's most familiar to us when problems come into our lives, when a mercy storm enters our homes. Try harder so that you can fix the problem. Try harder so that God will like you or forgive you. Try harder and maybe you can make the pain stop. Oh, how wrong we are to turn to that answer when a mercy storm comes. The lesson of tempestuous mercy is not try harder. As they say, your best efforts got you here. The last thing you need is more of that. Rowing harder will not save you from God's mercy storm. So stop rowing. Stop running away from the presence of the Lord. Believe God and cast yourself into the ocean of God's mercy. That's what you need to do. And so after the storm intensifies in response to their rowing, the mariners come to realize they have no other choice. They call on Jonah's God and they ask him not to punish them for shedding innocent blood. Since this was not their desire, this was a last resort thrust upon them by God himself, they recognize this. In verse 14 they say, You, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so just as God hurled a great wind upon the sea, the sailors hurled Jonah into the sea, and instantly the storm stopped. And from this, the sailors go from fear to exceeding fear. They are now more afraid than they were when they thought their ship was going down because they have encountered a God who can stop a storm instantly and who commands the waves of the ocean. And so they sacrifice sacrifices. They vow vows to this God. 
We don't know if this was a full conversion. But I pray that one day we will meet these sailors in glory because the fear of the Lord is at least the beginning of wisdom. God, in his dangerous mercy, has brought the fear of the Lord to a boat full of Gentile sailors through the disobedience of his prophet. The last thing Jonah wanted to do was to spread the mercy of God to the Gentiles. And despite his best efforts, here they are, worshiping Yahweh. And if that's the result of disobedience, what will the result of obedience be? Back to Jonah. Jonah, at last, has found the right response to the mercy of God. Don't ignore it. Don't avoid it. Don't try to earn it and row harder. Just throw yourself into it. The mercy tempest accomplished the work that God sent it to do. But the thing is, at this moment, Jonah understands God's mercy to be God's judgment. Jonah believes, for very good reason, that he is about to die. He thinks that his punishment for running away is death, and he's accepted it as the good and right judgment of God. He knows that he's been disobedient, and he accepts the justice of God. It's easier for Jonah to make peace with God's justice than it is for him to accept God's mercy, even when that justice means his own death. And it won't be until next time that Jonah is going to understand that God's tempest has brought him mercy instead of judgment. And boy, is he going to have a strange teacher. God's mercy is about to come up and swallow him whole. But before we meet the whale, I want to remind us of another prophet in another boat going on a remarkably similar journey, but with a dramatically different conclusion. You can read this in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 51, which tells us the account of when Jesus gets in a boat and soon faces a great windstorm that threatens to break the boat apart. And where is Jesus? He's asleep in the bottom of the boat. But as soon as the prophet is awakened and takes action, the storm stops. The sea grows calm, and everyone in the boat is more afraid of Jesus and his power than they were of the storm. Jesus revisits Jonah's voyage, but since Jesus is acting in obedience to God's command, all he needs to do is speak God's word to the wind, to the waves, and they obey. God rewrites the Jonah story in the key of faithfulness, because a prophet greater than Jonah is here. And so the lesson for us today is that God sends storms because of sin. But as Jonah's about to learn, the storm is mercy, not punishment. And how often do we make that mistake? Do we receive the difficulties, the pain, and the suffering that enters our life as if God is mad at us? as if the struggle that God sends is anything other than the loving act of a merciful, kind God who will not let us go our own way, the way that leads to destruction. What's scary to think about is not that God's storms might follow us in our sin. What's scary is if we sin and no storm comes. If God abandons us to our own 
desires. A father who does not discipline his children hates them. But a loving father brings the mercy of discipline into their lives. In response to God's tempestuous mercy, this story of Jonah teaches us that when storms of mercy overwhelm us, the way out is not by ignoring the problem, sleeping in the bottom of the boat. It's not fixing the problem by rowing harder. The way out comes as we are cast into the sea of God's mercy. But the gospel goes even further than this. The story of Jesus in the boat changes the ending. Jonah's sacrifice previews Jesus' sacrifice. But Jesus doesn't just repeat Jonah's example. So the fundamental lesson we need to learn is not that self-sacrifice calms God's storms. No, that's not it. Rather, the mercy of God in Christ calms the storm. So when you find yourself in the middle of a mercy storm, before you throw yourself into the middle of the sea, remember that Christ has sacrificed himself to save you. Rest in him first, then follow in his steps. God's storms are teaching you to stop running from God, to cast yourself on his mercy instead, not as a means of paying for your sin, but as a means of clinging to Jesus in the midst of the storm. It's not your self-sacrifice that calms the storm. It's Jesus. This is so important to see so that we don't get the wrong idea that God wants you to suffer before he will accept you back. You need to hurt a little bit. You need to struggle. Then God will welcome you back. Then God will love you. No, Jesus has already paid for your sins. You are already atoned for. This storm of mercy is not meant to fix your sin. It's meant to fix you and to call you back to Jesus. God wants you to link together the stories of Jonah in the boat, of Jesus in the boat, and the story of your own life. But he wants you to pay attention not just to the similarities, but also to these crucial differences. Like Jonah, we know what it is to run away from the presence of the Lord. God, in his mercy, sends these disciplinary storms after us. And he wants us to respond in the right way. Jonah's response was to submit to God's justice, only to be surprised by God's mercy. Jesus' response was one of faithful obedience, which enabled him to calm the storm with a word. And so your response must be to trust yourself to the mercy of God in Christ, who sacrificed himself on the cross in your place so that mercy can come to you. So maybe it's the case that your storm is caused by your own sin. It's important to remember that's not always the case. God does other things with storms as well. But sometimes, as Jonah knew, it tells us in this chapter, this storm was directly in response to Jonah's sin. And sometimes we can make those connections in our own lives. And when we do, we need to see that, that running away from God looks like self-justification. It looks like refusing to hear correction. It looks like digging in your heels and rowing harder. But throwing yourself into the storm of God's mercy involves the self-sacrifice of acknowledging your sin, 
repenting before God and those you've sinned against. Trust that God has sent this storm in order to drive you to Christ, to make you more like Christ, the one who obeyed and who calmed the storm with a word. And because that's God's goal through such a storm, the name of the storm is mercy. Well, maybe we're facing storms in our lives, in our church, in our culture, for the very same reason as Jonah. Jonah was given a particular call to go and tell. We've been given a general call to go and tell, to warn our neighbors of the coming judgment against wickedness and sin. And yet, in many ways, we've ducked and run instead of rising up to go and tell and bear witness. Our running might not be quite as blatant as Jonah's. We might disguise it by doing a million good works for God other than the one he's calling us to. When we get busy in every part of the Christian life except going and telling. And so this is a moment to ask ourselves how big a role does going and telling play in our lives, in our church's life, in our community's life. Throwing ourselves into the storm means giving up the comfort and complacency of not rising up, of not going and telling. It's easier. It's more comfortable. It seems great when you're asleep in the bottom of the boat. But until you rise up and go tell, you're sinking in the storm, even when circumstances don't seem that way. But as we embrace a life of self-sacrifice, instead of this self-protective running, we need to remember that Christ has already overcome death for you. Your sacrifice, whatever it is in this commission to go and tell, and it is a sacrifice, it will feel like dying at times. But whatever your sacrifice is, it will end not in death, but in new life. The Christian life is not about losing your life for Jesus. It's about losing your life in order to save your life, which is the blessing that Jesus promises. Because casting yourself on God's mercy will feel like dying. And that's perfect, because now you're ready for God to raise you up. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this account of your mercy coming like a storm on this rebellious prophet who looks all too familiar. So, Father, we pray that you would be at work in our hearts through this word to convict us, to challenge us, to change us, and to point us to Jesus and his obedience. Father, we thank you that even in our sin, even when we run away from you, you send your mercy after us and we are saved. So we praise you and we glorify you and we ask you to strengthen us to cast ourselves onto your mercy for the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in his name that we pray and amen.